Hello, everyone. My name is Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. On this podcast, I will be discussing with leading experts some of history's most infamous and maligned women. Within each episode, I do not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but I do strive to bring a more holistic and rounded understanding of each particular woman's story. Step back in time and come on this journey with me as we discover the lives and legacies of these fascinating women. On today's episode, I will be discussing Lady Elizabeth Chudley, Duchess of Kingston, with historian Catherine Ulster, author of the book The Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalized 18th Century London. Keep listening to learn more about this dynamic woman. On an endlessly bright summer night in St. Petersburg in 1777, a glamorous three-masted ship sailed into harbour. On board the yacht was a lone woman, responsible for scandalizing the British public and ready to make her name known at the court of Catherine the Great. This inconspicuous woman on the regal yacht had quickly become the anti-hero of a Georgian society desiring a headline other than the War of Independence an ocean away. As Elizabeth Chudley, Duchess of Kingston, or so she called herself, sailed into St. Petersburg, she had every intention of making a name for herself as she had in England. In an age that saw the beginning of modern concepts such as celebrity and endless news cycles, the Duchess became the perfect personification. A Duchess, art connoisseur, manipulator, and bigamist, Elizabeth refused to accept the role life had prescribed to her, and preferred infamy to anonymity. Elizabeth's early life, beginning with her birth in 1721, was spent on the grounds of the Royal Hospital in London, where her father was Governor-General. After her father died when Elizabeth was six, her mother struggled to keep the family afloat. In a culture unforgiving to single women, Elizabeth soon learned the way to secure wealth and affluence for herself and her family was to get married. This reality became infinitely easier when, at the age of 22, Elizabeth was able to acquire a position for herself as maid of honor to the Princess of Wales. As she entered the royal court, Elizabeth had, as one historian noted in 1911, provoking beauty, the combined brilliancy and delicacy of her complexion, her sparkling eyes and natural wit, she had little of the goddess and plenty of the woman and her charm lay not in her beauty, but in her peaked expression, her varied moods, and her fascinating manner. She had a temper, and one can conceive that when put out, she did not take refuge in the chilly silence of that stately beauty. It was at this point that Elizabeth would come into contact with the power of the media and this new concept of celebrity. Here is Catherine Ulster. Well, she was a, you know, your brilliant podcast is all about scandals but she was 
it's also odd the news cycle that someone she was written about from when she was very young um, because she had an official sort of position. So she was maid of honour to Princess Augusta, Princess of Wales. And that was a very sought after role. Um, you, you know, it was, it was a bit like a sort of Bridgerton thing, you know, sort of diamond of the season type thing. You've been chosen by the court because you were beautiful and you could speak French and you could probably ride and you had perfect manners. And so, and it was also about the only role uh, a, a single young woman of sort of with connections could get that would be paid. So it came with quite a relatively fantastic salary, actually, which was perfect for her because although she had upper class connections, she had no money and no dowry. So she was a bit sort of down on her uppers. Um, and so the moment you join court, people started writing about you because then it was it was a marriage market. So here are the new girls. Who are they going to marry? I don't know. It was a bit like, I always think it's sort of like, I don't know, Gossip Girl or sort of debutants or, you know, it, it was a hotbed of kind of gossip and sort of young fame, really. And and then she carried on being written about because she did all sorts of things that sort of drew attention to herself. And I think she quite liked being written about. But then it's odd, you know, as we're saying, we hadn't heard of her. Then she ends up in this enormous trial for bigamy which was called the trial of the century. And then and then it's all forgotten about. So I was quite interested in how, I, you know, as a writer and a journalist, how people can be so famous at one point and then they just, their stories just sort of disappear. So, so much of what we associate with modern life, like uh, coffee or shopping or newspapers or gossip or just sort of the world of pleasure, comes from then and I found so I find the period very interesting and I also find the idea of history as I think you do written from the point POV of the woman interesting because I think well yes okay that's a good story but what's it like if you actually look at it from the other side and you know Jane Austen reminds us so well of how you know women who look quite privileged also had this sort of terrible sort of desperation where you know if you didn't have a rich brother or father and you weren't of the class that could get a job and you didn't have the education because pretty much no one did you know it was you had to get married it's desperate you know um and I just always felt that sort of the stakes are so high it always felt so humiliating to me that you've kind of you know you've got to find someone and you know, it can be tortuous enough anyway without thinking that's your only option as it was then. So I, I just found it very interesting. I didn't really feel history has been written so many times from that point of view. Elizabeth blazed into the spotlight of the royal court, gathering a number of admirers. In the wake of a devastating breakup, Elizabeth made a reckless decision that would come to haunt her years later. As Catherine describes, she nearly marries someone called the Duke of Hamilton, and he's a very grand, very well connected Scottish duke. He's actually completely unsuitable, but that's by the by. And he kind she he thinks she's um she thinks he's abandoned her uh, when he goes abroad. In fact, his relatives have persuaded him because they don't think he's she's a worthy bride um, to go off on a big grand tour. On the rebound, she, for reasons that are slightly mysterious, possibly 
love, lust, or who knows, but marries in a clandestine arrangement very late at night. It's a, I always think of it like a Vegas-style wedding, a sort of a catastrophic mistake with a young naval officer, four years younger than her. And then they both agree to keep it quiet because her position of maid of honour with the salary of £200 a year uh, is dependent on her being single. And he owes most of his money at that time to his grandfather who wanted him to marry an heiress. So they both keep it quiet. And then he goes off on his ship and almost immediately they regret it. So, you know, Vegas style, they think, what have we done? We're really young. Neither of us have got any money. We hardly know each other. And so they sort of pretend, they start off by keeping it secret because they have to, and they sort of pretend by, end up pretending it never happened to the world. And then they sort of, she sort of convinces herself it didn't happen. And, and to be fair, the rules of marriage were so woolly then that it's not quite clear it was legal. It was late at night. They didn't have enough witnesses. And in fact, her, she has this mentor called William Pulteney, who is very briefly prime minister in England. And sort of on her behalf, he brings in the 1753 Marriage Act. And the, that still actually dictates our marriage laws today. And it's based on her. So now you have to get, get you have to get married within certain hours. You have to have two witnesses. The door has to be open. And this applies in England and America. And you have to, it has to be a sort of public event so that everybody, so that everybody can have the chance to sort of object or not. So you have the reading of the band. So you have to put the, things up six weeks in advance saying we're going to and that all comes down to this act actually which was sort of triggered by her strange situation but anyway that's by the by what happens they they agree to keep it secret he actually meets someone later tries to get a divorce she says we can't get divorced you'll ruin my reputation so in the end she manages to convince by paying off various witnesses and things she manages to sort of make that go away and remarries, or as she would have it, marries someone called the Duke of Kingston. And then, um, but when he, it, it's a very happy, very brief marriage. He dies, he leaves her everything, and his uh, disappointed nephew gets wind of the fact she was already married. And so it's all about money, really, as most things are. So he brings a trial for bigamy in Westminster Hall because he thinks the will will be overturned if he can prove it wasn't a legal marriage to his uncle. And that's why we get in 1776, at the height of the War of Independence, this enormous trial in Westminster Hall with 4,000 visitors, people crossing Europe, newspapers, newspapers at war, one taking her side, one taking the nephew's side. And it just turns into this enormous event. Um, and I, I think it's sort of, I don't know how much it happens in America, but I think when things are really serious, you know, as they are at the moment and grim things are happening, there's always the need for a bit of light news, you know. So over here, it would be, you could read about Russia and Ukraine, but you've also got Harry and Meghan Markle just to sort of not cheer you up exactly sounds a bit callous but you you know what I mean there's always that 
human need for we can't just read about all this kind of war we want other stuff i think so people got sort of obsessed with her trial and people and, and tickets were sold on the black market for huge amounts of money because every peer in england so all the lords and the dukes got seven tickets each and then the, the resale value started going up and up and it went on for five days and um, there are a million, you know, still drawings and sketches of this thing. So that's why it became such an event. She wasn't as portrayed a sort of self-serving villainess. You know, she really loved this man. And she really, you know, in a slightly old, fa you know, in 18th century English way, she aspired to Christian values. And she, she did, really didn't think she sort of, really didn't believe in the first marriage she didn't think it was true and actually if it had been after 1753 only nine years later it wouldn't have been so there was an argument in her favor um having said that she was also very willing to suppress you know the truth by paying people off and you know she tried to play her own hand the speed at which elizabeth's life seemed to fall apart must have been startling she went from happily married wife of a duke to being hauled in front of the House of Lords on crimes of bigamy and depicted in newspapers as a modern age Jezebel. The complications of Elizabeth's trial often seem like bizarre fiction, not a genuine court case, and it drew the British public to it like moths to a flame. Here is Catherine. It's, it's a very interesting sort of trial. It goes on for five days the first day everyone thinks it's going her way uh she's enormously sympathetic she dresses very carefully as I said she was a theatrical creature and she wore this sort of black dress and this white ruff so she always looked like a nun I mean you know kind of hilarious really when it's a bigamy trial but and everyone's like, oh she's so dignified she makes perfect sense and then unfortunately for her the uh one of the servants who was at the first wedding who she paid off for a bit and then stopped because they had a row, comes in to Westminster Hall and says, but I was there when she got married. And everyone goes, you know, <laughs> really. So, so, you know, it gets very, and then she sort of passes out and, you know, it's all very sort of uppy downy, but um, no, she loses. But it's her story is really strange because it sounds like it's got so many twists. You think it must be made up, but it isn't. And then the lawyer who was probably one of the greatest lawyers of the 18th century and had massive influence on both England and America, Lord Mansfield, in terms of, you know, he begins the fight back against slavery and also an extraordinarily far-sighted man manages to convince the judge that she shouldn't be punished, that the punishment is the verdict itself, which is saying your marriage isn't valid and you can't call yourself the Duchess of Kingston. And he also manages to ensure that the nephew doesn't get the will overturned. So they've been through years and years of trying to gather evidence to show that she'd been married before. They succeed and they don't get any money. I mean, it is absolutely... After, so it's all for nothing. So, but she's so upset and humiliated that she leaves England that night and she says, I'm never coming back to this ghastly hole that's mistreated me so badly. And she never does. And they, the, the sort of, the punishment is 
you cannot call yourself the Duchess of Kingston. That's not your name. And she's heartbroken because he was her big love and that's her identity. So she builds this yacht and sails into St. Petersburg and she calls it the Duchess of Kingston. So she's just not having any of it. So on the prow of this thing, I was having this vision. I don't know whether it's accurate or not, but sta her standing on the prow, as you can, there are pictures in the Royal Naval College in Greenwich of this massive ship with the Duchess of Kingston on the side. You know, that's what she calls herself in Russia. And she got away with it. She didn't get away with it on, in some courts of Europe because the British ambassador would feed. So she tried to become friends with Frederick the Great. And the British ambassador said to him, she's not really the Duchess of Kingston. She can't be called that. So he wouldn't receive. But she got in with Catherine the Great because she sent two pictures from the husband's house in advance to one of her admirals. So she got an invitation that bypassed the British embassy. She was as wily as anything, you know, and she just wouldn't accept that she wasn't allowed to be called. So she only lived in places where she could use her title. You know, I got slightly obsessed while I was writing the book with going everywhere she'd been. And by some luck, just before lockdown and the war, I went to St. Petersburg because she took all this stuff to Russia, where she lived for many years. And basically, she her husband had a stately home in Nottinghamshire and she sort of emptied it into the boat because she thought, I'm not going to let those ghastly relations get their hands on this. So, you know, marble fireplaces, pianos, paintings, silverware was all shipped to St. Petersburg. And amazingly, it's still there, perfectly preserved in the Hermitage. I couldn't believe it. So pictures hanging on the wall, it, 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 it's been there ever since. It went in Second World War and the Siege of Leningrad. It was sort of went to the frozen Urals when, you know, the, the Nazis were about to take it all. But... Other than that, it's all still hanging in the Hermitage. I was so lucky to go and see it. In the wake of the case and Elizabeth's flight to the continent, the story was slowly overtaken in newspapers by the continual War of Independence. In the decades that followed, Elizabeth took on a new life in fiction, inspiring stories like Vanity Fair upon her over-the-top life. However, when she appeared in the pages of novels or biographies, she was often depicted as a sex-crazed, gluttonous, unhinged, manipulative attention-seeker. Catherine argues that her story is much more fascinating than the one-dimensional femme fatale of the narrative. I think the biggest misconception, I think, was that she was sort of doing everything on purpose. You, you know, like most things, her tragedy and her success although I'm slightly contradicting myself because I said she manipulated the press which she did try to do but her she was impulsive you know rather than manipulative difference I think um and I got in terrible trouble for writing about I mean not terrible trouble but it's very controversial when you try and apply modern values to history and on one level you know we all know you shouldn't and you can't. But then on another level, I found some of her behaviour so curious that I did actually consult a psychiatrist in London. And I said, given all this, what would you say was the problem? Why is she behaving so strangely? Because she had all sorts of odd sort of tips. Like whenever she saw somebody even in a play pretending to die, she would pass out. She would faint. If someone fell over, 
someone once did at a ball. They passed out. She passed out. It was really strange. So I was like, what's going on? And also she did things like... She went to the theatre. It was a thing sometimes then you could eat in the theatre. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, like, a lot. But she really ate in the theatre to the point where people started writing about it, like, what's wrong with her? She's got... You know, so I found it interesting. And, like, she was really sort of suffering in quite a public way. And you could tell we would look at someone like that and say, there's something not right. There's, you know, you there's a, there's a problem. And he also said that how people react to things is... Uh, environmental and of their time so you know 19th century and earlier people always fainted you know they they're very stressed they pass out no one faints now I mean some people think it's to do with corsets but you know people get really stressed they might have panic attacks they don't lie on the floor you know and he said it's kind of contagious how people react to stress is contagious it's that thing, isn't it? They're like us and they're not like us. But I wanted to try and walk in her shoes a bit and see how like us are they. If we were in that situation, the secret baby, the stress of them, how would we react? And I just wanted to make her human in a way that I didn't really feel, you know, and I feel like it's very easy, as we all know, Everybody does it all the time to sort of objectify and dehumanize, isn't it? Those are the goodies. Those are the baddies. You're a monster. We don't like your behavior. You're a saint. And most people are neither, including her. So I, that's what I wanted to do. See, how, how to what extent can we sort of flesh out somebody from the past? She didn't you know give herself away very much um which meant that other people could write her story for her and they could just they just wrote what she what they saw which is kind of true but like everything else only one half of the truth which is she was a bigamist uh she had been married she married a duke and then the line of the prosecution was she hadn't really you know, loved him. She just wanted to be a duchess and she'd married him for his money and that she was an attention seeker. And, and she was sort of an attention seeker, but there'd been a, a much tragedy in her life. And I kind of think that some of that attention seeking was, attention seeking was a sort of desperation, sort of notice me. I, and she had to live with terrible secrets. You know, she had a she had a baby and it died, but she couldn't tell anyone because she wasn't admitting to being married. So she certainly wasn't going to admit to having had a child. And then there's this tragedy that it dies. And so she went through this thing, which is bad enough for anyone. But when she had to appear in public and pretend that none of it had happened, I think it drove her slightly, you know, I think we, we would all have a strange reaction to that kind of world, that kind of life. And so she had these terrible secrets and she had odd reactions. So in 1749, she went to this party, this sort of fancy dress masquerade ball for um, the treaty signing at Aix-la-Chapelle. And she wore this almost completely see-through dress. It was like, do you know the Elizabeth Hurley dress? Do you remember that moment when she wore the safety pins? And you know, everybody went mad, like saying, what, what is she wearing? She looks naked. Actually, it's very hard to work out exactly what it was. I think it was like a sort of 
flesh-coloured chiffon or something, but from the distance, she didn't know she was wearing anything. And so the king comes up to her and everybody starts doing these sketches of the scandalous Miss Chubley. And all the women are horrified. Like, she's, what is she wearing? But she was a sort of, in another life, she would have been on the stage. She was a sort of theatrical character. And, um, you know, in the end, she began to be that friend who's endlessly entertaining, always in a drama, never listens to advice um but he's also quite sort of fabulous and you know when you write a biography everyone always accuses you of being too keen on the person actually I could be really unkeen on her sometimes I think she was really annoying and also you know <laughs> the author of her own misfortune and I was also rooting for her at the same time you know, it's much more interesting than that. Like, no one had made the link to the marriage trial because William Pulteney was her great friend and he... So that's kind of... And also people hadn't made the link between when it was all happening. So when I said the trial was at the height of the American War of Independence, it also suspended political business in Britain. It was such a big deal. It was held in the House of Lords. And it was so, as I said, 4,000 people came. They couldn't have any debates during the trial. So they literally had a pause in the War of Independence. And people, the witnesses included the Secretary of War and the King was being informed of it. So it had sort of lost context somehow. And I don't think, I think the, if it is fashionable or interesting to hear women's stories, that's a, still a relatively recent phenomenon, unless it was someone who was like Marie Antoinette or I just don't think, I think, history by and large has been told from the point of view of men. Elizabeth's story continued to be told by others mere days after her death, when the contents of her will were analyzed in newspapers all over Europe and Britain. Elizabeth shocked society both during and after her lifetime. She defied the stereotypes of an 18th century woman, sitting calmly in the home until a man, a father, brother, husband, decided her future. She grasped her future and the pleasures she could receive from it with both hands. For this, she has often been villainized. But Catherine believes it's what made Elizabeth infamous that should be the most celebrated. Although it wasn't a, a, a linear journey for her, she was determined to stand up for herself. And, you know, even now, I'm not sure that women always take that path. We, so often try to be the conciliatory, charming, you know, well-behaved person and to stand up for yourself and say, actually, you know, I'm not going to apologise. I'm just going to fight for what I think is right. Is still, can be still quite an intimidating idea. It's just sort of inspiring courage, even if you get it wrong. Still better to speak up for yourself, probably. You know, that's what I sort of take from her and I think for her to do it when no one else was doing it or few people were was really brave so I suppose you know defend oneself one can have an impact on history obviously not everyone can but it's interesting to see people sort of bucking a, you know bucking a trend and sticking up for themselves in that way she she wouldn't take anything sort of lying lying down you know the fact that she had been humiliated in front of everyone and convicted of bigamy. And the punishment was meant to be a branding on the hand with a hot iron, and you would get a B for bigamy on your thumb so that no one would marry you again because they could see you be married. I mean, you know, it was sort of 
funny period half modern half medieval brutality anyway she managed to not have that punishment but still everybody knew what she'd done and the fact that she didn't take that she then went and made herself a star in St Petersburg I just sort of admire there was something in her that meant she just that she was going to survive 